At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. You are joining us in the mix of our next 90 days challenge where for 14 consecutive weeks, we as a community are doing all we can to thrive through these upside down times. This week, the theme is resilience. And in a conversation around resilience, this idea of deciding to get back up, the decision to keep going in the face of adversity, even when it's hard, we've decided to share with you the most resilient we as a family ever have been, a chapter from my book, Get Out of Your Own Way, about our adoption journey. In the book, I tell a series of lies in each chapter, trying to dispel a lie that I believe that kept me in my own way. And this chapter, the chapter that it's my job to protect them from problems, was one that I believed until I saw how persevering through being resilient through problems could be for us. As you listen to this, I hope that, yep, you are encouraged by a conversation of how a five-year journey finished our family, even though and as it was harder than we could have ever expected. But also, I hope that you'll consider how 2016, a year that I am not interested in repeating, is one of the years I look back on with so much gratitude for the way it showed how strong our marriage could be, displayed how resilient our kids could be, represented what faith really felt like in the midst of hard times in a way that maybe for you, 2020 and this quarantine, this upside down world we're living in may in fact be something that you can stand on top of in six months or two years or 10 years from now as the time when your resolve, your resilience, your tenacity, your ability to push through and get back up through hard things was shown to you because of your ability to get through what we're getting through right now. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy this, a chapter from my book in Get Out of Your Own Way. It's chapter nine. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis. And I'm Dave Hollis. And we're married. For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things, this is Rise Together. 
Chapter 9. The Lie. It's my job to protect them from problems. When Rachel gets upset, my very first instinct is, what can I do to fix this? As in, right away, before too much time passes and she experiences more discomfort than is absolutely necessary. It's wired into my being. The role I feel I'm supposed to play to keep her happy, to keep my kids from experiencing pain, the desire I have to maintain equilibrium in my home at all times. I am a peacekeeper by nature, and keeping the peace, managing expectations so people aren't let down, alleviating pain when it comes up, those are my jobs. At least I thought they were. We went through a crazy 2016. As part of an adoption journey that was rolling into the third year of a five-year ride, we'd moved from a failed international adoption into the Los Angeles County foster-to-adopt world. We were so naive about this. We didn't realize we were making an intentional choice that would introduce problems for our family at a rate never previously experienced. Problems I thought I had to fix. Problems I couldn't fix. You see, problems, it turns out, may not exist for me to fix in the first place. And it took me inviting more problems than we could have ever imagined for me to learn that it's not my job to fix them or prevent them from happening. Foster care is hard. Sadly, the system is broken and built on the back of tragedy. And even though we'll fight for the rest of our lives to help mend that brokenness and support the families who provide care for these children so badly in need of consistency and love, the reality of foster care was nothing we could fully have understood until we were all the way in. It was April 2016 when we got the news that a baby girl was being placed with us. In the middle of our excitement, I also remember the overwhelming urge to make sure we didn't get too attached. I wanted to control how it might disrupt our bio kids. I needed to make sure it made sense to our extended family, to make sure we told folks at our jobs the right story so they understood our why. And then, an 11-month-old baby was dropped at our house by a stranger in a white van with a pillowcase of belongings and a wish of good luck. Um... Our family went from five to six in the matter of a phone call and 38 minutes of drive time. It was crazy and surreal, and two days later, we got a call that our first placement's 22-month-old sister also needed a home. In the blink of an eye, we were saying yes to being a family of seven. Double um. We couldn't have anticipated in those early days the collective 33 months of trauma these precious babies came into our home with and how it would intermittently show up. The unreal mix of emotions that would come during biological parent visits and how odd it felt to invite social workers into our home. It was controlled chaos. No, it was chaos. It was beautifully hard and a window into a world that desperately needed love. Walking into it softened some of the edges of our hearts. The experience helped us appreciate the small things that we found ourselves fortunate to have. That initial foster placement was a mix of beauty and challenge, but it was the first step in a process we had unwittingly entered. We wanted to adopt a daughter, and we found out after we were too far down the road that in order to adopt in the county of Los Angeles, 
we needed to foster first. It was a requirement, a prerequisite, a thing they forgot to mention until the 74th hour of a 75-hour parenting class that we thought would get us certified. Foster care? For us? Full-time working parents of three humans already? This journey seemed to be taking on a life of its own after our international adoption attempts in Ethiopia hadn't worked out. And now we held on for the ride. Adoption was what we felt called into, and foster care was the road required to get there. Every single part of me wanted to stop before it started. How many unforeseen problems would we be opening ourselves up to? Why would we intentionally agree to do something that felt so hard and came with so many scenarios that disrupted our lives? How would we pull it off with everything else we had going on? What about our boys? Every instinct I had to cut problems off at the past was activated at the news that we were going to be foster parents. In nature's style of fight-or-flight impulses, the flight button was flashing red-hot. It felt so big and overwhelming, so we decided to stop thinking of all that could go wrong and instead focused on all that could go right. We decided to fight for our daughter and ask more positive what-if questions. What if fostering got us closer to our adopted daughter joining us forever? What if it let us help a baby who needed us in that moment? What if it modeled for our boys how to love, even when it's unconventional or hard? So we dived in. We welcomed those precious girls and their trauma and their smiles and the looks they gave each other in being kept together. We hosted a one-year-old birthday party and a two-year-old birthday party. Our friends and family making a big deal out of a couple little people they didn't really know. Who we didn't really know. We helped a baby take her first steps and say her first words and worked with a system that didn't feel normal but hadn't yet revealed its full brokenness. This toe dip into uncertainty and ignoring the flashing red light of flight felt good. The girls were with us for three months. When they were ready for their return home, we kissed them goodbye and then turned the corner into our happy ending, finding our forever daughter we'd adopt in the next stage of our journey. Sure. Well, actually, no. It wasn't anything like that. That would have been nice. Or would it? Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. It was two months after our now one- and two-year-old placements left our home. The phone rang at work around 3 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon in July as I was doing what I was normally doing, having a meeting, about an upcoming meeting. My assistant walked in and said it was Rachel, and it sounded urgent. I hurried to my desk. Everyone's okay. I got a call from the county. They have babies we can adopt. Immediately. Hello? What? Did you say babies, as in more than one human? 
The idea that everyone's okay felt misplaced. We jumped on the phone with an emergency placement worker and got the details. They're four-day-old twins. Their mother left the hospital in the middle of the night. This is your opportunity for fast-track adoption. If you can do this, they can keep them together rather than place them in separate homes tomorrow. You should know they're being weaned from cocaine in their system, so it will be a bit of work at first. Oh, and they need to know in 20 minutes. Making that decision in those 20 minutes is something we will point to 25 years from now as a critical domino in so many things that would follow. Twins are hard. Twins being weaned off drugs are even harder. We could never have imagined what we were signing up for on top of three other kids, two full-time jobs, navigating the county of Los Angeles, and attempting to learn all we could about their culture. The babies were African-American and were Caucasian. To take proper care of their skin and hair and connection to community. We got off the phone with the social worker and said a long, what should we do, prayer. Our home was certified for two kids from that first placement, which felt ordained. We had a community ready to help, friends who'd adopted multiple kids before, and an intentionally multicultural church. These all felt like things that had been placed in our lives to prepare us to answer in the affirmative when someone gives you 20 minutes to agree to something so big. So we said yes. That first month was a blur. Sleep didn't really exist, and if it did, it happened during strange hours in unconventional places and never synced with anyone else's. It was exhausting and hard, and the happiest I think I've ever seen my wife. Our family was complete, our adoption journey done. These babies that we picked up at the hospital and named and sleeplessly kept alive for a month were thriving, starting to get into a rhythm. Our chaos was slowly turning to normalcy. They were ours. We were us. It was good. And then it wasn't. We got a call about five weeks in, telling us that the outreach that fateful Thursday afternoon, the call that had represented the adoptability of these babies and had given us 20 minutes to decide, had turned out to have been a misrepresentation, a story, a thing that a desperate emergency social worker had said, thinking that was a likely scenario that would play out, not knowing that there was biological family members petitioning the courts in the background for custody. Custody of our daughters. Well, our daughters is a misnomer. They weren't ours. They never were. I thought the call in July was the one that would change our lives. In truth, the call in July was the disruption we chose. The call in August was the disruption that chose us. The next few weeks were brutal. We were given the breakdown of how a judge would hear a case, how things usually go in these proceedings, how the twins might be able to stay, but how, if these social workers explaining things were honest, they'd likely have to leave our home. The rest of the world did not exist. We felt broken and scared and confused. That light started flashing again. Flight, flight, flight. Protect Rachel. 
Protect your boys. Protect yourselves. Protect your broken hearts. I was numb. Rachel was gutted. A few weeks later, that same white van that had dropped off two baby girls in the spring was back to drive away with two baby girls in the fall. It happened in the blink of an eye. It happened with little fanfare or emotion from the woman who nonchalantly put them in their car seats and threw a nice but unconvincing wave. They were gone. We were shattered. Rachel was done. The aftermath of the twins leaving wasn't pretty. Our boys watched as we modeled true sadness. Rachel and I were in the bottom of a trench, clinging to each other, just trying to survive. It didn't feel like it in real time, but it took the hardest thing we'd ever been through to see how strong we could be for each other. It took enduring this impossible season to appreciate our ability to endure any impossible season that gets thrown our way in the future. I thought I knew we were strong. I thought I knew we could make it through anything. Actually doing it made those thoughts of how strong and resilient we could be look so small compared to what I believe today on the other side. Our boys? They were having their metal tested as well. Resiliency wasn't a trait they'd been formally introduced to. It wasn't something we'd even really thought about exposing them to. I can see now that I'd gone out of my way to make sure that they didn't ever find themselves in situations they'd have to be resilient through. Our faith? Tested. Really tested. In fact, only when we found ourselves throwing our hands in the air and asking why it felt like we'd been led into a place to be left there were we able to truly understand faith. It's easy to believe when things are going well. Believing while they're going terribly wrong? That was something I'd never truly been forced to do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It took this experience to change my thinking. As hard as it was to watch, the impossibility of fixing what was happening in our lives showed us the incredible power of enduring, proving to us as a family that we were up for all of it. We came out the other side stronger, even though it required discomfort and tears and uncertainty. The idea of pulling ourselves up and going back to normal lives was hard to wrap our heads around. It didn't feel possible. But a couple weeks after the twins left, we found ourselves in our backyard, stuck in the conversation we'd been in ever since they left. How do we move forward? Rachel had been the driver of the conversation around adoption up to that point, but our roles had shifted. And I said something so uncharacteristic of me and a lifetime of wanting to prevent us from experiencing pain. I said we needed to keep going in this pursuit of a daughter. That our desire for a daughter didn't go away just because it got hard. In that moment, 
Rather than trying to prevent pain, I was trying to prevent us from having to live with regret. I could so clearly see the 10 years removed version of ourselves mourning the daughter who never became part of our family. This hard, impossible season would come and go, but that feeling of an unfinished family would float as a cloud above us forever. I knew it felt hard to continue this push, but in that backyard on that day, I also knew with certainty that the trade-off of short-term pain would be nothing compared to the permanence of not trying. So we transitioned onto a path toward independent adoption and made an appointment with an attorney. It was a Friday in November when we met with him to learn about this unconventionally beautiful process that is private adoption. But on Wednesday of that same week, Rachel asked me to reach out to the twins' biological dad to see if we could bring him some food, bring them some clothes, do something, anything, to help with the closure we were looking for so desperately. So I called him. We had a very pleasant conversation. He politely declined. He didn't want anything to do with us and didn't want us in his daughter's lives. We were on the other side of what would have been a battle for custody, so it was hard for him to appreciate the rationale behind our request. I understood. I knew that Rachel would be broken by the news. Again. Then that Friday meeting came, and it went well. After four hours of learning all about a somewhat foreign process, we left feeling good about the decision, about the road ahead, that we had a plan and a restored hope and a dream that had felt hopeless for some time. As luck would have it, the office of the attorney was next door to an amazing restaurant that we'd been to a couple of times in celebration. It was a Beverly Hills joint where they sell $22 grilled cheese sandwiches, but it felt like overpriced bread and cheese was perfectly appropriate for the step we'd just successfully taken. We sat outside, overlooking a fountain and overhearing the ridiculous conversations that you cross your fingers for when you come to a place like this, highest class problems, the eye-roll-inducing complaints of day-drinking socialites. It was perfect. And then Rachel asked, Hey, did you get in touch with the twins' dad about us bringing over some food? I'd known the answer for two days and had decided to keep it to myself so we could actually make it to the meeting with our attorney. Now, though, I made that scrunched-up nose look and said, he doesn't want us to be involved. Tears. Rachel was wearing a very stylish pair of Jackie O sunglasses, you know, the kind that covers the majority of your face. But when those words dropped out of my mouth, her tears came streaming down. Not like a gentle cry. This was a full-on gut punch, and she was sent back in that instant to the moment we'd gotten the news of the twins' unadoptableness. She composed herself long enough to say two words through heavy sobbing that I'll never forget. I'm done. My compelling argument in our backyard was one thing, but this time, I didn't think I could change her mind. This wasn't about the last four hours of a meeting being wiped out. This was the choice to end the marathon that was this ever-changing slog to adopt a daughter. Rachel was done. 
and in the moment, I was with her. The tables at this $22 grilled cheese sandwich restaurant were incredibly close to each other. Close enough that when the man at the table next to us slammed his hand down on our table, it startled us both out of our tears. You can't give up, he told us emphatically. We both stared at him dumbfounded. I'm so sorry to interrupt, he told us, but I couldn't help but overhear. I was adopted. My parents had failed adoptions before they adopted me and my brother, and they sat in the place that you're sitting now and had to make a choice to give up or keep going. They kept going. If they hadn't kept going, I wouldn't be here. If they hadn't kept going, I wouldn't have graduated at the top of my class or married my wife or have my career. You can't quit. I think I'm sitting here right now because I'm supposed to tell you that you can't give up. Our jaws were on the floor. We wiped away our tears and reached out our hands to officially introduce ourselves to the stranger sitting next to us. He responded with two more words that I'll never forget. I'm Noah. Of course, his name was Noah. Of course, in the flood we were experiencing, we were sent a Noah to help us appreciate that we needed to go on. And that, in a sea of doubt that truly tested our faith, God had been with us the entire time. We decided to not give up. November became January, and we were paired with a pregnant mama looking for adoptive parents for her baby. At the end of February, she gave birth with us in the room to welcome our baby girl. When the nurse asked us for a name, there was only one that felt like a fit. Noah. Noah Elizabeth. Noah for the original Noah who trusted and built despite the lack of evidence of the impending flood, as well as the Noah at the restaurant who had encouraged us to have faith at a time when the path didn't feel safe or certain, and Elizabeth, the middle name shared by my wife and the wonderfully selfless woman who chose to trust us with her baby. It was a happy ending to our nearly five-year journey. I did a podcast recently telling our story, and when I was done, the interviewer said, I'm so sorry that you and your family went through this. Here's the thing. I'm not. I used to think that way. When we were in the middle of it, we would have loved for everything to go as planned, pain-free and happy. But now, on the other side of things, I'm not sorry it all happened. In fact, I'm happy it happened, exactly as it did. I'm proud we made choices that created massive disruption in our lives. I'm grateful that the decisions we made and the forces that interceded in our life to turn it completely upside down did just what they did. Even as it caused pain and discomfort and tears, because it caused pain and discomfort and tears. Lots of tears. As much as I never want to live through the end of 2016 again, I find myself grateful. I'm happy I didn't find a way to keep the painful things from happening. I appreciate the tests and lessons that afforded us strength as individuals, as a couple, and as a family. 
In fact, one of the most important lessons was coming to see that the critical things that will shape who we are and how we'll grow as a family will only get enough oxygen to do so when we stop trying to fix them and allow them to happen. Much of what my kids need to become the people they are meant to be requires them to endure things that they may not like. And being a good partner to my wife isn't exclusively about preventing discomfort, but standing alongside her when she goes through a hard time or needs support after a long day. Whether it's me personally, my support of my wife, or my parenting my kids, many times what I need most is to not get what I want. Growing through those difficult seasons allows us to become stronger, more mature, more confident in our ability to handle whatever comes next. Are you a peacekeeper? Resist the temptation to fix everything. First, you can't actually do it. Second, if you can, it may very well keep you and your family from seeing what that challenge was meant to pull out of you as you become a bigger version of yourself. Things that helped me. One, I sought counsel from other people who'd been there. Resisting the temptation to fix things that could disrupt our life required first finding those who could tell me how they survived the same kind of season in theirs, how they maneuvered through it, how they were stronger coming out the other end. When something comes up that you reflexively reach to fix, ask if you know anyone else who is successfully navigating that problem or is on the other side of resolution. The positive proof that came from knowing that others had been there first was critical in our foster adoption journey. But it is just as important to find positive examples of how other husbands process stresses with their wives or how other dads approach discipline or reward with their kids. 2. I stopped fixing small things to train my caveman brain. We have a kind of brain in our heads that has, from the beginning of time, been about survival. And that survival sometimes required man to hunt and gather and provide for a family that waited for his return to eat. That centuries-old brain meets ego and societal gender norms in a place that tells men it's our job to fix everything. That primal wiring, those pangs of ego swimming against the current in culture, they require baby-stepping through times when you don't hunt and don't gather, when you allow those loved ones you'd normally fix things for to show that not only can they survive without your fixing things for them, but they might actually thrive. Let your son crash on the bike with a helmet and let him dust himself off. Let your wife vent about a challenging day and do only what she needs most. Listen, practicing this with the small things will give you the confidence and boldness to do the same when life presents a disruption you can't fix or one where good comes from living through it. Three, I visualize the outcome, not the problem. When we wanted to teach our boys to become more independent, take responsible risks, and respect their elders, we sent them away. 
we sent them to camp. It challenged the idea that I alone was responsible for helping them become who I hope they grow into. Shocking to my ego, yes, but so important for me to learn. I started with what I wanted them to be, independent, responsible, respectful, and worked backward to how to accomplish that, which, in this case, was sending them off to camp. It's the same for my marriage, my relationships with employees or friends. My fixing their problems has sometimes been the problem, and it took knowing what I ultimately wanted out of the relationship to pull me out of their way for their good.